The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in July 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we are joined by the set designer, Michael Jurgen, who has a very long and distinguished career, not only in uh, theater design, but also opera as well, who for many decades has been at Yale. He is currently a professor in stage design at Yale School of Drama. Broadway credits range from Bad Habits in 1974 to most recently on Broadway in South Pacific, for which he won the Tony Award and the Drama Desk Award for his set design. Also, a couple years earlier, on that same stage at Lincoln Center Theater, the Vivian Beaumont, for the design of The Light in the Piazza, Tony and Drama Desk Award as well, Drama Desk Award for Awake and Sing. Also, other recent shows include Cymbeline, Seascape, Ah, Wilderness, a revival of that, and many years ago, The Ritz. Michael, I guess we should start with South Pacific and okay. Lincoln Center Theater. This now, by my count, is your fifth association with Lincoln Center Theater, your third with Bartlett Shear, the director. Is that about right? I think that makes sense. You've done the math. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I kind of counted things up. Um, South Pacific, first time it's been revived right. on Broadway. There have been many productions around the country, including, I think you did a production yourself That's in, right, in Dallas did. many years yeah, ago. Yeah. What are the challenges both of designing for South Pacific, but also designing for a thrust stage, a show that was originally designed for a proscenium stage? Well, I've been in love with South Pacific since I was a kid. When I, my aunt used to play the, the record over and over and over again, and they were the 78s that flipped over, you know, and... Uh, and so I grew up with those songs, and I think that so many other people did as well. And I think the most you, – you start forming images the minute you hear that music in your mind. So I've had images bouncing around in my brain ever since I was a kid. And then the movie, which uh, I know most people hate because of all the color changes. You can't talk about that movie without talking about the color changes. And I loved it. I, was, I just thought it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. And so then I've, I've actually des- designed it twice before. I did it once for the Music Theater of Wichita, which was a stock company, and uh, spent a year working on it, actually, because it was a huge stage and a very big, romantic, proscenium, traditional production. And then several years went by, and I was asked to do it with Richard Hamburger at the Dallas Theater Center. And we were literally in a kind of a... a, a corrugated tin barn that Eugene Lee had designed for them that was a second space for them and Richard was saying you know I've got to do a musical in here and I don't know what to do and I said well you're almost in a Quonset why don't you just fill it up with sand and do South Pacific and we did and it was very very simple he discovered a lot of things about it that uh, that I knew were in the show but that he really brought forward and I thought well that's it I've had my chance to really do a, a great production of South Pacific and then this came along at Lincoln Center after Light in the Piazza, which was an amazing experience. And I just, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that we were finally going to do this, the revival on Broadway in the Vivian Beaumont, which uh, I had discovered to be the most miraculous space with Light in the Piazza. It's a very intimidating space when you see it completely empty. The proscenium is the size of the Metropolitan Opera, and yet it's got this small thrust stage in front. So you have this incredibly intimate theater and yet at the same time, you've got this kind of grandiose spectacle space behind it. So the real joy of it was working with Bartlett Share on this because we had about two years to really, from the time we knew we were going to be working on it and doing it, uh, Kathy Zuber, the costume designer who we'd worked with on Light in the Piazza, was, was again doing the costumes. And Don Holder came into it as the lighting designer. 
So we really spent a lot of time off and on just starting from scratch, starting from um, the National Geographic photographs that from the 40s that are such a, a seminal piece of research for this piece, and just re- reading the, the, the novel over and over and over, or the short stories, I should say, and just just really burying ourselves in the material and wallowing in it in a way. I actually turned down a lot of other work because I really wanted to be sure we got it right somehow. Well, you talk about one of those uh, other stagings being on a very large proscenium stage. That's right. The proscenium at uh, the Vivian Beaumont is something like 50 feet wide That's and with right. about a depth of about 60 feet on the stage. So it's a huge, huge stage. That's right. Did you have nightmares about how to fill up the space or is that easy to do? After Light in the Piazza, it wasn't as intimidating as it was. I, I sort of discovered, I think, in Piazza that if you involved that space, if you really dealt with it and didn't try to close it down and make it a shallow space, that somehow it fed the downstage space. The energy just was occupied there. It felt very natural that people could work on diagonals in that space. So when we came to South Pacific, uh, there was a conversation with Bart early on where we had – we were in the basement of the Intamon Theater, his theater that he runs in Seattle. We were working on another project, and Kathy Zuber, the costume designer, and I and Bart were sitting around batting ideas around. And we had this idea of, of – I just read the prologue to the, the, the short stories, which is incredibly beautiful. And we decided that we would make a show curtain of that, and we were saying – God, you know, we're using this 30-piece orchestra. It's a shame not to, to show them. We don't want the audience to just think that they're, you know, off in some room someplace being mic'd. So I said, well, what if we could somehow find a way to pull the floor back and, and reveal the orchestra? Bar said, oh, well, that's a great idea because then we've got Mishner, Rodgers, and Hammerstein, and then we can go into a credibly romantic, very shallow scene for the terrace, Emile de Beck's terrace, and then we open it up. We open the Beaumont to the full depth, and it's a beautiful bare beach, maybe one palm tree. And way in the distance, you see Bloody Mary being chased over a hill by the sea bees. And that was the design. That was a kind of a key moment when it happened. And basically, that's what we did. And, you know, that wasn't the end of it. It was what the other things were that filled it. We were determined to have an airplane on stage because all of the pictures in the National Geographic were the Seabees were about building these air bases. And they were the the staging area where these where these people went off to fight. So one thing just fed another and the space just sort of filled itself up once we put our ideas into it. So often when a classic show is revived there is some concept applied, mm-hmm. some new take. Was there a new take that you all discussed? I think that Though it would not look like there is, I think if you look at the original Joe Milziner designs, which had always been a favorite of mine, you'll find that they're very painterly, that they're very much informed what we now think of as kind of traditional musical comedy design. That is having a curtain or a drop that's very shallow, which we call an in-one, where the uh, someone sings a song or a little scene happens in front while you're changing to a major set upstage or behind it. And that was the tradition of this show. He had what he called a tapacloth curtain that pulled across. It was it was revolutionary in its time because apparently at the end of the first scene, the terrace scene, the Seabees actually jumped into the scene singing Bloody Mary is the Girl I Love as the tapacloth closed. So scenes sort of overlapped. We had a whole different kind of space to deal with. And instead of actually closing it down, we kept trying to let the diagonals inform it. The closest we come to doing that 
is um, with the we have a, a system of blinds of like tropical blinds that can kind of come in and, as one or they can filter and you see things through them which we do with the house um, the closest we come is to the company street is using that is but again you're seeing everything through it it's not like we're hiding anything behind it and changing it and I think we didn't fill the stage full of palm trees. We have one palm tree. And uh, the floor actually, though people say it's sand, is actually treated like a board, wooden board floor. So we're very much informed by Bertolt Brecht and being presentational and saying, you know, this is an item that tells you where you are. It's not like we're literally taking you there. And the way that the Be- uh, Beaumont um, uh, Auditorium is set up, the audience really sees the floor because of the the, you the, do indeed. the, the height of the seats. You do so indeed. the floor becomes very important, I would think. Very important. And when we did Piazza in there, I think we repainted that floor about five times trying to just get the color right and the feeling right. We lucked out with uh, South Pacific. We only painted it once. But then they discovered that... Um, these trucks that we found, these real World War II trucks we found that actually turn around, they form the, the stage for uh, the honey bun number at the beginning of the second act. We're ripping up the floor because the floor material itself wasn't uh, strong enough to take it. So they had to completely replace the surface of the floor that was so beautifully painted. <laughs> Fortunately, we were able to reproduce it. <laughs> we keep talking about the scale of the show. We've done almost 10 minutes talking about the scale. Right. And of course, you know, when I saw it, you mentioned the airplane coming on. I saw the airplane coming on and I just thought, my God, is this is the size of this show more akin to your opera work in some ways? Because there is so much more space than on virtually any other theater space stage you would see. I guess you could say that, but it wasn't consciously thought, it's consciously thought meant to be that it's, it's like an opera, so you do big scenery. It's just one huge space and it meant that you could do things in that space that you couldn't do on a proscenium stage that informed the design, that informed the place. And uh, the trucks that turn around for um, the, the honey bun number that we just talked about actually is another element that you probably couldn't do in a proscenium space because you don't have the depth. You don't have the storage space. The Vivian Beaumont, I think, was designed the way it is because it was originally meant to be a repertory house that you were going to be seeing three or four shows in repertory. So all of that space was really meant for storage space and that they were going to portal it way down and perform on the thrust. Because you've got it open, it seemingly, to the back wall of that theater. Almost, not quite. But uh, it gave us the chance to do what Bart talked about, where he said, I want to see way in the distance. And the sand dune sort of makes a transition to the sky, and the fact that it had to be up high so people could come over it sort of just it, – it, it, um, it plays with your sense of depth. It's almost like false perspective. You think that it's higher than it really is, and so people look small when they come over it. So. You, you talk about some of the advantages of working with a thrust stage, being able to do some of these things like bring the airplane on and mm-hmm. turn the trucks around. What about the challenges of a thrust stage versus a proscenium? Well, I've always loved, most of my work after, since I graduated from Yale was done in thrust theaters, Hartford Stage Company, the Long Wharf Theater. And I fell in love with that way of doing theater because even if you're sitting on the sides and you think, oh, I'm in a bad seat, you're really not in a bad seat. But it's, it's almost like watching a film because in film you're looking over someone's shoulder while they're talking to someone else. And it feels very cinematic. It feels very intimate. And that's and I think the magic of the Beaumont is that it's this huge proscenium, but you feel so totally connected to the people when they're on that thrust stage. And you can have entrances from the house 
from up below, from the VOMs, as we call them, the, the entrances through the audience, which I think give an incredible sense of immediacy, and they just open it up so everything isn't so flat on like you're looking through a picture frame. Well, let's jump back and find out how a two-time Tony Award-winning <laughs> set designer starts as a set designer. Was Were you interested in theater specifically through design, or did you get involved, like so many do, being in the school play? Well, <laughs> a little of both. I had the great good fortune to grow up in Dallas, Texas in the 50s, and it was a time when there wasn't much theater, but there was uh, the Metropolitan Opera used to come through in the spring on tour and bring four productions every year. And I had a fantastic uh, fourth-grade music teacher, Miss Parr, and she would go down to the offices of the, the Met, their touring offices, and bring back life-size pictures of the singers. She would decorate the room. She would tell us cleaned-up stories of the operas. She would play the music. Well, what's a cleaned-up story Well, for example, I, remember, her, I remember very specifically her telling us the story of La Traviata, and she had a book, and she was reading out of the book, and she started by saying, Violetta Valerie, a courtesan in Paris, and, and all the hands went up. Miss Parr, Miss Parr, what's a courtesan? <laughs> and there was a long pause, and she said, Oh, honey, they're ladies of the court, and they love to go to parties. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't until years later that I realized there was more to just going to parties <laughs> and that they were ladies of the court. But she would then take us to the – She would, we would all get on buses, and we would go see – La Traviata or whatever was there, she would say, I'm going to take you backstage and you're not to repeat any of the words you hear back here to your parents at home. <laughs> and uh, and it was an amazing time. We saw, I saw, and it was life-changing, I saw Maria Callas directed by an unknown Italian director at the time that had been brought over named Franco Zeffirelli in a blow-your-mind production of Traviata that where he started using this kind of flashback technique and I saw her do she came back the next year this was the Dallas Civic Opera that had been formed in the meantime I saw her do um, Medea the night that she was actually fired from the Met by Rudolph Beam with this amazing fiery performance and we realized well maybe it was because she'd just been fired from the Met. I saw Joan Sutherland make her American debut I saw Renata Tibaldi, Richard Tucker, UC Burling. It was the golden age and of opera. And this is all, you started elementary school, junior high, high school. It started with that. It started with that. And uh, my grandfather, uh, who was actually president of the gas company at the time, was on the board of, that brought the Met and then later the, the Dallas Civic Opera Board. So he had these fantastic seats and we would go. And it was this major event in my life. I was the biggest nerd in high school because I loved the opera, and I was going to the opera and you know, mm-hmm. instead of the football games and the basketball games and all of that. And the, the thing that Miss Parr did was that she had us make little shadow boxes. She'd say, go home and get a shoebox and make a scene from the opera. Well, I'm still doing it. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it, uh, it was, it was, it, it, the, also there was a magazine called Opera News Magazine, at, which is still in existence. But then it was very small and it was published once a week. It took to, to co- uh, coordinate with the live Saturday afternoon broadcast. Well, I would live for those broadcasts and I would make models of the sets that I would copy from the pictures of the, out of the magazine. Then I would start to fix it and change it and, and it was really the way I got into it. Then I stage managed. Uh, I never was really interested in acting until I had to act when I was in, in college. 
But uh, well, just, why did you have to act? Just so that you knew what an actor has to go through. And I played the executioner in uh, in uh, what was it? Jo- the, not Joan of what's the Lillian, Lillian Hel- the the Lark <laughs> Lillian Hellman's version of the. So that was quite a performance. Did you then expand your horizons beyond opera into plays and musicals? Definitely. And the 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 thing that changed that was I started ushering actually. Because uh, there was also in Dallas, uh, uh, every summer there was the Dallas Summer Musicals, and they did seven huge productions of musicals. They would bring in stars, and and there was a designer in Dallas named Peter Wolf at the time who actually designed the – he was a Yale graduate, and he did these beautiful Broadway-style productions, very painterly, very traditional – and I would watch those shows 14 times because they ran two weeks. And I learned so much about stagecraft and just by watching those shows and when things would go wrong and how they would, would fix it. And then I ushered for the what was something called the Broadway Theater League that was a company that Ava Legallian had put together. And they did three shows in repertory. And it was uh, The Crucible, Ring Around the Moon, and The Seagull. Plays I'd never seen, never heard of, and it was Ava Legallian. Farley Granger was part of it. I can't remember. Peter Larkin had done the sets. And I remember watching The Seagull for the first time and being mesmerized. And when she said at the end, when he says at the end, the fact is Konstantin Dravilovich has just shot himself, I couldn't move. I was literally blown away. And then to see those same actors the next night do this light, frivolous farce, you know, Ring Around the Moon. And then to see The Crucible, these three amazing plays back-to-back, well, I was totally hooked. I just knew that this is what I had to do. And I knew I wanted to be a set designer. I always knew that. I knew that was what I wanted to do. Why? It was the best magic trick I had. I mean, it was like, I remember the first opera I ever saw was La Boheme. And we were in these great seats that my grandfather had gotten. And I remember the curtain going up, and it was this shabby garret, and I couldn't tell what was painted, what was real. It was a whole other world that was evoked. I was I was sitting there with my jaw hanging down. Then it changed. It became a, a cafe on Christmas Eve. And then it was snowing. It was the toll gates outside of Paris. Well, I immediately fell in love with Paris. I felt, I went home and I wanted to find out everything I could about Paris. About it just it just fed my mind in an odd sort of a way. So at what point were you designing sets that were coming out of the shoebox and actually being built? I was in high school, okay. and it was the high school musical. And I had a terrific – again, a, another great teacher in high school who had who ran the, the chorus or whatever, and they put on the school musical every year. And the first one that, that we did was a musical called Plain and Fancy, which was about the Amish. And, and then the following – which I did the set for – and killed myself, you know, painting it and and trying to incorporate all the things that I'd learned from watching. Uh, no from formal the training. Metropolitan Opera productions That's right. to your high That's school. Right. Yeah. That's right. That's <laughs> right. A little bit smaller scale. And then the next year it was Bye Bye Birdie, and I studied uh, those original designs and. Uh, you know, and that was a kind of a flight of fancy because there was a lot of that show that wasn't so realistic. It was the telephone hour, which were on these colorful cubes. Robert Randolph designed it, and uh, so it, it began to open my mind that stage design doesn't always have to be totally realistic. That there are these kind of flights of fancy, and that it can mean something more than just telling you where you are. 
And that those were the first two. Then I um, I actually went to Peter Wolf in Dallas and interviewed with him to see if I could be a paint boy or anything just to work in the studio. And he was totally unionized and couldn't do it. And he said, what you really need to do is to go get the best liberal arts education you possibly can. You study English. You study history. You study art. You study architecture. Forget the theater. You know, do it as, a, as an extracurricular activity. And then go to grad school after you finish that and you come back to it. And if, at that time, he said, well, the only place to go was Yale. And uh, so I did what he said. And I was a terrible student. I went to a – because my dad was a traveling salesman for the Stetson Hat Company. And there was a, a university called Stetson University in Florida. I was bound and determined to get out of Dallas. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I went to Stetson University, which is a small, you know, liberal arts school in Florida. It had a terrific theater program where we had to do everything. We ran the box office. We, you know, did the publicity. We painted the sets. And it was it was great training for about two years. Then I went on a junior year abroad program to Spain, which was fantastic. I really think that everybody growing up in this country should get out of the country at that age, like in your 20s, and look. And I traveled all over Europe. I saw a lot of theater. I saw Giorgio Strahler's production of Servant of Two Masters. I went to La Scala and... Didn't even realize it until about a year or so ago. I found the program from a Rigoletto that I had seen there, and it was with a young tenor named, you know, Luciano Pavarotti, who I didn't. <laughs> I was so, you know, blown away by the theater. I didn't realize. Now you had seen theater in Dallas. You yeah. saw theater then in Europe. Had you ever seen theater in New York at this point? I did. When I left for, um, I had been taken to New York by my grandmother when uh-huh. I was a kid, and the first play I ever saw in New York was Mary Mary, Gene Kerr's play. And then uh, the next night, or a couple of nights later, we saw Vivian Lee and Tavarich, a musical. Hmm. And I was so amazed at how small the theaters were, because in Dallas, everything performed at the State Fair Music Hall. Was musicals, not the plays, but musicals, operas, and that seated about 3,000 people. So it was a revelation to me as to how much smaller and intimate the New York theaters were. And of and, course, I loved it. And did you go to the, the opera in New York? Did you go to the you Met? Know, it was in the summer. So oh, the Met the was but And it was when the old Met was still there. And I remember going by it and looking through the windows and wishing I could go in just to look at the theater. But... Um, you couldn't. And I just remember seeing the crystal chandeliers of this dirty, shabby building on the outside and being blown away. So with all of this self-motivated learning about right. theater, what was the experience when you got to Yale and were accepted into the design program? Well, I came to Yale to study with Donald Lowenslager, who was uh, a major, major designer in the 50s. And, uh, I, you know, on Saturday afternoons, I would go to the Dallas Public Library and pour through every book I could on set design. And and uh, he was a prominent figure whose name you saw, Lee Simonson, Joe Milziner, all these guys. And so when I got to Yale, I was informed, we were informed that Mr. Owen Slager was retiring at the middle of the first year, my first year at midterm, and that a Chinese-American designer, or actually Chinese, he is Chinese, Ming Cho Lee was, was taking over from Donald. But that he would be coming up during that first semester, so we would be studying with both of these gentlemen. Well, it was absolutely maddening because they were so diametrically opposed in their ways of thinking about theater. And uh, it was just, you know, Donald Owenslager had one way of teaching and Ming-Chi Lee had another way of teaching. And so it was very schizoid. But somehow we got through it, and I'm so delighted to this day that I had the experience of working with both of them at the same time. 
And uh, I still teach with Ming. Ming is my great friend, and he was my mentor. And, uh, you know, he's still going strong. And uh, I came back to Yale, and after I graduated, as resident designer. And I've, I think from this experience that I had in Dallas with these wonderful teachers, it became a part of me, and I've always loved teaching. And uh, so that's sort of the full circle. Well, you mentioned being resident designer at Yale. For those who don't know, there is the drama school That's and right. the Yale Rep is is really it's all the same organization. You right. came back pretty quickly after you graduated. I did. I you know I went to, I graduated from Yale and I went to BU to teach for because I was I was terrified that I was going to graduate and didn't have a job and I love teaching so. There was a fill-in kind of a job that they had said would be kind of part-time that I could freelance around that. Well, it, it ended up being pretty much full-time. And while I was there, Howard Stein, the associate dean of the School of Drama at the time, Robert Brustein was the dean, called me and said, would I be interested in coming back to be resident designer and to teach a course in stage design for non-designers, people who weren't majoring in design, stage managers, technical people, whatever. And I leapt at it. I said, Definitely. And so I came back, and it was uh, an amazing year. And it was then that uh, Terrence McNally came up to do a play called The Tubs at the time, it was called. And it was about a gay bathhouse, and it was this crazy farce. And Carmen de Lavalade was, was in it, playing this crazy Puerto Rican nightclub entertainer. And while he was, And so I got to know Terrence really well. And then he asked me to do another little play that he had written called Bad Habits, which we did off-Broadway. So that sort of was a key into the New York theater, and that was the first thing I ever did. And then Bad Habits was a huge success off-Broadway, and it moved to the Booth Theater. And so I got into the union because of that. And uh, then the Ritz, he changed the name of it from the Tubs to the Ritz. He rewrote it, and it came into New York and did the Ritz. So that was the first real Broadway show that, that I had. And, that was the beginning. And at the time, you were co-designing these shows. That's right. I was co-designing with my partner Larry King, who we met. Who we we met at Yale, and uh, it was a crazy time at Yale. It was the beginning of the '70s, and there was a lot of drugs, and there was a lot of pot, and there was a lot of stuff that neither of us were interested in. We were. I really had no time for that. And uh, so again, I was sort of a nerd outcast because I wasn't participating in all of that. And we sort of, you know, hung out together and got to know each other and uh, worked together, moved in together. And uh, then and we actually did I we I would sort of do the costumes and he would do the set or vice versa, however it worked out. So we co-designed. And that's interesting. You mentioned that you were doing costume design yeah. at the same time. Was that something that was part of the program at Yale? Was that something you'd been interested in? No. I, if you had told me when I went to Yale that I would ever be interested in costume design, I would have said you were crazy. But then I got there, and there was, again, a wonderful teacher, Ariel Balaf, who really took us through the history. And I got really interested in it, and I started to draw costumes, and I learned to draw people. And it was a wonderful when, – when you did both on a show, it was wonderful because you really had such a rapport with the actors – you had a you you were creating the space that the clothes were inhabiting. It was a total experience, but it was also totally exhausting. And though I could do the costumes, I always felt like you know it was like who do you have dinner with? You know, if you do it all, 
And, you know, you go to the <laughs> restaurant, by you're by yourself, and it's like, well, what do you think? It's, oh, I think it's going very well. Don't you? Aren't the clothes beautiful? Yeah, I think the red dress is a little, you know, it was like, you know, and so it was it was eliminating part of the collaborative process. And I think the collaborative process is really why most of us are in the theater, because it uh, it's that batting back and forth of ideas that lead to sparks of wonderful things that happen. And uh, I felt like when you did both, that, and, and I also felt, I guess, in a way that I came in as a set designer and that I was a bit of a fraud as a costume designer, that I really couldn't do as well as other people could. And so I kind of, in opera at the time when I was starting to work in, in a little bit more internationally, it was expected that you would do both. And so I kind of had to do it that way. But then in, I've just gotten away from it. It's just, it's too hard. <laughs> Well, since you brought up the, the idea of the collaborative process, you really haven't talked about working with lighting designers. I would think that the set designer, the lighting designer, have to work very closely. I, I, I absolutely. Would think. Absolutely. And I've been blessed uh, to have worked with brilliant lighting designers. And and the best the best kind of collaboration you can have is when everyone is in the same room. And it and that really started with Mark Lamus up at Hartford in those early shows, and I and I had been sort of forced on directors as a resident designer at Yale, and you know they sort of accepted me, but it wasn't like I wasn't their really chosen designer. And when I started working with Mark, he opened up such a he opened up Shakespeare for me as to what the possibilities were that it wasn't just men in tights that it was you know that it really could bloom and 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 say so many different things about life and and those productions that were all set in different periods and crazy ideas crazy visual ideas and and uh that really brought those plays to life and that was the first and, and we were working a lot with uh dunya ramakova at the time a wonderful costume designer um steve strawbridge was lighting a lot of the things with whom i teach now at yale and those collaborations were were just fantastic, and it's hard to know where you don't. Lighting design is a whole separate kind of. It's like sand through your fingers. If you're a set designer, you can show a model, you can show photographs, you can so re, show research. Costume designers, it's fabric swatches and sketches. The lighting designer, you can just talk about the light and the quality of the light, but it's very hard to to show a director or a designer what you're going to do before you get in the same room. Pat Collins was was lighting at the time. I mean, brilliant lighting designer. I learned so much from her. And you were in awe when these geniuses began to throw light on your set. And sometimes it was like, I never thought it could look like that. So when you're designing a set, do you work at that point with a lighting designer, or does that person come in after you've already done the Usually, usually for some strange reason, and I don't know why, the way that it usually works is that a director and a set designer meet first, and they talk about the play. Then the costume designer comes in, and the lighting designer is the last because, in a way, they really can't do much until there's something for them to put the light on. I don't think as a set designer you can think about a set without thinking how it's lit and what the – what because the, that's what you're seeing in your, in your mind. In your mind, when you think about anything, you're seeing light hitting objects. It's the light that illuminates those objects. So you have to, you know, know the last one's in. <clears throat> Before we swing back to talking about particular productions, uh, the academic aspect of your background and in, in your teaching, and it's remarkable now, there are probably so many designers whose work we know who you taught. Right. And in some cases, with other people who went through the design program at Yale, you might find yourself working on a show with a costume designer who was a right. student when you were teaching, or and I know right. some of the lighting designers 
So, so first of all, what is the experience of of seeing your kids right. being out in the world and becoming your peers? Right. Well, I can't I can't take full credit for this because you know I'm really sort of the second banana to Ming, who is the actual head of the department at Yale and was my teacher. And we co-teach pretty much now. And we're on a pretty much equal footing. But, uh, you know, when I won the Tony Award for the first time, it was amazing because I looked around at that group of people that were the design, the people that won, and all of them except for Brian McDivitt, who's also a dear friend, had gone through our program. And I thought, oh, my God, these are all my my kids and Ming's kids, and we're all up here, and we've just had this wonderful experience. It was great to see Todd Rosenthal this time for Osage County win because he was another he was a wonderful student and it was and you know the 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 beauty of Yale is that uh, it's a very small program it's a graduate school and there's only 10 students in each year it's a three-year program and I think it's about three set designers three costume designers three lighting designers a special student usually from Europe or China or Asia Asia and uh you really get to know these kids. Kids, they're twenty. They're in their twenties. You know, they're young. They're, you know, young professionals, and they're they're wonderful. I mean, we we interview maybe ninety to a hundred people every year, and it has to hone down to these ten people. And so, you spend three years with them, and not only are they your students, they're your friends, and they are your peers. And it's a delight when you are working with them. Because you know that you're all speaking the same language. You've all learned how to sort of get inside of a play in the same way. And you're all sort of excited in the same things. So with these, so many of these people training at Yale, mm-hmm. does that create a kind of a Ming and Jurgen school with both a capital S or a small s? Uh, that I think a, it does. A certain style of design that now has spread beyond... Uh, I, I don't think it's a certain style of design. I mean, I think that, that uh, while they're there, sometimes they try to emulate what we do. Uh, I kind of pride myself on the fact that I really don't have a, a strong style of my own. Maybe others see it in my work. I certainly don't see it. And, and I feel like that you have to approach each play... I used to say it's always like an equation that you have play plus director plus designer plus theater plus 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 equals production and the minute you change one of those coordinates of the equation it's going to it's going to change the way it looks and change the production and I think that you you know there was one year when I designed three different productions of Madame Butterfly with three different directors and they were they were designed over about five years, but they all ended up being in the same year. And I was so delighted that they were all three completely different approaches and different styles of design. So I think that's important. Well, you mentioned directors. Over your career, there seem to have been a few directors who you've worked with a lot. And right. you've spoken a little about our friend Mark Lamus. Mm-hmm. But let me ask you sort of what some of these directors – brought out in you or you brought out in them, uh, the first being Andre Serban, who you did right. a lot of work with in the right. late 70s in particular. Right. It's interesting how that happens. Um, with Andre, I had read about Andre Serban's work. The first thing I read about were the fragments of a trilogy that he did at La Mama, that he was this Romanian director who did this sort of earth-shaking treatment of these three plays. And then right after that, he had done uh, a production of The Cherry Orchard with Irene Worth at the Vivian Beaumont. And then he came into my life because Robert Brewstein hired him to come to Yale 
to do, to direct the Ghost Sonata, Strindberg's Ghost Sonata. And as resident designer, I was basically assigned to him. And he, he so opened up my mind to what European theater was all about and how unconventional it was, how unrealistic it was, how expressionistic it was. I mean, these are all, you know, adjectives but that, are, that are hard to explain. But it was certainly not, you know, doing Oklahoma. It was a whole different way of thinking. It was a, it was a play that encouraged that. And we really hit it off. We really, in fact, the more he challenged me, the more I threw things back at him. And he, he loved that. He was, he was not the easiest person to work with. And yet at the same time, he became one of my dearest friends. He would yell and scream at you in the theater till you thought you were never going to work again. And then at the end of the rehearsal, he would say, come on, let's go have dinner. And it was like he was what you what I took away from that experience was that many times when there's chaos in the theater or there's disagreement, it's over a situation. It's not you personally. And you have to learn to just be able to kind of accept it as a situation. And uh, after that, he asked me to do uh, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg at the Public Theater, which uh, was an amazing experience, and it went on forever. I thought we were never... There's a song in it, If It Takes Forever, I Will Wait For You. Well, it was like, If It Takes Forever, the show is never going to open. It just went on and on and on. And then while we were doing that, and this was very a major point in my career, uh, a man named Brian McMaster who ran the Welsh National Opera sent Andrea a telegram saying... Would you be interested in doing La Traviata for the Welsh National Opera? Well, he thought it was a joke. He, the Welsh National Opera, Michael Vice is this Welsh National Opera. So he threw it away. And then while we were in the middle of doing this, this man showed up at one of the performances. He says, didn't you get my telegram? <laughs> and he said, Traviata is long gone. But he said, would you be interested in doing Eugene Onegin with the company? And Andre said, well, you know, I was raised with the Pushkin poem and I know it. And he asked me if I knew the opera, and I didn't know it that well. But we, again, buried ourselves into it. Andre used to have a cabin up in upstate New York, and we would go up there and just stay for a week, just really dig in. And I would bring model-making materials, and we would crash out a design. And that design was very successful, and it led to a string of work with the Welsh National Opera, about six different operas. So I was constantly commuting to and teaching and all that stuff to to do that work. Perhaps the longest-lasting collaboration is with Mark Lamus, who I make it you started working with in the early 80s, and you're about to do a production of Of Mice and Men at Westport Country Playhouse. That's right. How has that changed over the years? I think that we've both grown as people, and I think it's been wonderful that we both work with a lot of different designers and directors. And I think somehow that feeds the work. And so when you come back to work together again, you bring something else to it that you've learned or that you've you've uh, that you've uh, uh, gained in, in knowledge and experience from from someone else. Not to say that you copy somebody else, but it just it feeds it. And as you grow older, you think differently. You think about shows differently. Uh, the last thing that Mark and I did was Cymbeline at Lincoln Center, and Mark had done it twice before with different designers. And I remember when he called me, I said, you know, I saw the last one. It was so beautiful. Why don't you just do that again? And he said, well, I've changed, and I don't think of the play the same way, and I've got different ideas for it. And uh, and so, in a way, that's it's it's very it's it's refreshing to come back after doing a lot of other things and and work together again. Well, since you mentioned Lincoln Center, 
you've worked three times now with Bart Shear at Lincoln Center, twice right. with the Vivian Beaumont, and then the other uh, show being Awake and Sing, which is very, very different than right. working at, at the Beaumont. Right. Tell us about working with, with Bart Shear. Well, Bart, I knew Bart through um, Hartford Stage. The first time I ever met Bart, he was this kid who was sort of an associate artistic director or an apprentice. I can't remember what he was doing there. But associate artistic director. He was a, and he had a little office. And he was kind of, whenever I would come up for a meeting with Mark, he would come bounding out with all these pictures of European theater that he he's, you, do you know this director? Have you ever seen this work? And, and so he was this enthusiastic guy, and I always enjoyed him enormously. And uh, then years later, I mean, I, I saw his production that he uh, did Servant of Two Masters up there. I, I saw a little bit of his work. But he was working with other. He was younger than I was, and he was working with, with different people. Then out of the blue... Years later, I had this call to do... He was doing his first opera in Seattle. He was running the Intamon Theater, and he was doing uh, the opera version of Morning Becomes Electra, which had been originally commissioned for the Met years ago. And he said, it's fascinating. Uh, would you be interested in doing it? I said, well, sure. So I met with him, and uh, he's very. he was very exciting to to work with. He worked in a very different way from Mark and everybody else, and a very kind of a wandering way and that slowly begins to, to hone itself into something that's concrete. He uh, is a great lover of architecture. And he said one of the reasons he always liked my work was that it was very architectural. And I said, okay. Was that a compliment? You, I don't did, know. Did, I mean, did, did you take it that way? <laughs> yeah, I guess. He was asking me to work with him, so I guess it was. So we designed uh, this production of, of Morning Becomes Electra. And Jennifer Tipton, with whom he had worked as an assistant when she directed The Tempest at the Guthrie Theater years ago. Now, Jennifer, as I said before, is a lighting designer. And at one time, she was toying with the idea of directing. So she directed a production of The Tempest under, when Garland Wright was at the, the, the Guthrie. And uh, Bart assisted her. So they've been fast friends through that experience. So she actually lit this production. And it was kind of mind-blowing. And, and because Bart had no operatic experience, as he said, he was a deadhead from the 60s, you know, he really brought something new and, refra- and brought the theater to it. And then while we were working on that, he asked me to do uh, Light in the Piazza at the Entomon in Seattle. And unfortunately, I, I had committed to do um, Present Laughter at the Stratford Festival with Brian Bedford, so I had to turn it down. Well, what happened was that uh, that um, the playwright was actually, Craig Lucas was actually directing that production of it, and Bart was producing it. And uh, it wasn't going so well. I'm not sure what all the permutations were, but... It ended up being that Bart took it over to everybody's you know, you know, goodwill. And it was a co-production with uh, the Goodman in Chicago. So by that time, when he took it over, he said, we need a whole new design. And so I could come in, and I did it there, and then we moved it to the Beaumont. And I don't know how these things happen. I mean, I think that there are certain people that you click with. Bart is very loyal to his collaborators. Uh, you really become a part of his life, and he becomes a part of your life. And, you know, these things are like a marriage. The first time you work together, it's you're a little standoff of each other. But then as you get to know each other, you start to think alike. You begin to develop a visual vocabulary. Uh, I think sometimes you can work too long with somebody. I had a long collaboration with an English director, uh, Elijah Mashinsky. And I really felt that sort of went on a little too long. Toward the end of it, I just felt like I was repeating myself. I wasn't bringing new ideas to the table, and he was accepting them. Oh, like we did when we did so-and-so, and I thought, well, that's not so healthy. 
So that sort of went away. But uh, but that was that the, the collaboration with with Andre and with Mark have been and Bart have been the kind of anchors of my career. So there's that word collaboration again. Obviously, collaborating with the director is very important. When you embark on a, on a, on a show of, of any sort. Do you get that initial direction from the director? Do you get it from the material, from the script, from 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 where? Well, everybody has to start with the script, mm-hmm. and uh, you. I hate reading plays because it takes me so long to read them. I have to read it like, oh, Joe, and you act it out, and you're like, oh, I can't just skim through it. And also when I'm reading it, when I see a red flag or I see something I really need to pay, I'm making notes on the side. There are designers and directors who say the best thing, and we tell all of our students, just read it. Don't make notes. Just read it. Get a sense of it. And I keep trying to do that, and I've never been able to do it. The secret is out. And uh, then you talked, for example, Mark and I haven't talked at all about Mice and Men. And literally, he emailed me yesterday. The designs are due at the beginning of August. And he said, he sent me an email that was titled Of Mice and Designs. <laughs> and we emailed back and forth. He said, oh, I think it's contemporary. There's no, it doesn't have to be in the 30s. I'm thinking of casting an African-American actor as Lenny. It was done with, you know. And boom, your, eye, your mind starts to fill with imagery. And you start to have a conversation. And that's the beginning of the collaboration. And you can't, you know, if if you've grown up in this country, your mind is full of, of a kind of visual collabor- of, of uh, uh, visual vocabulary of ideas, of images, usually from movies we've all seen. And so the minute someone starts talking about it, there's a movie that starts in your mind, and you've got to get it down on paper. And that's when you start sharing with the... Uh, and then the costume designer comes in, Jane Greenwood, who's a dear friend and a longtime collaborator, is doing the costumes. So, now, yeah. Using Bart Shear, perhaps, and uh, The Life of Piazza as an example, mm. that started the Intamon, went right. to Chicago, came to New York, went out on the road as a touring company. That's right. How does that affect the design over the, over the life of the show, from that first staging to the, to the road company, everything in between? Right. Well, I didn't have anything to do with the first one, and it was a very different kind of production, apparently. And I, never, I saw a few photographs of it, but I couldn't really tell... What it was, the orchestra was very small. It was on stage. It was a much more intimate production. Then you get to the Goodman Theater, the new Goodman, not the old one, which is a very large proscenium Broadway house. And again, it was a space that you had to fill. You couldn't really hone it down. And I and the problem that we it was a much more symmetrical presentational kind of a design. Uh, it was a piazza with two permanent buildings on the side. One side was the public. One side was the like a church or a museum. The other side was much more into it, almost like a, uh, a Serlio theater of the, you know, the early, you know, 1700s, that kind of Baroque theater where it was the public side and it was a one set in which all the pieces fit in the middle. And it was boring as hell. It was too square. It was too big. The orchestra was very small. And we all felt, me included, that the set somehow was dwarfing the production. Nonetheless, you know, it it sort of did its run there. We didn't hear anymore. We didn't know if anything was going to happen with it. I think Bart was, and and uh, they were all negotiating with who was going to bring it to New York. And Lincoln Center won out. And I was asked to continue on with it. But because of the Beaumont, it completely changed the dynamic. And diagonals work so well in the Beaumont that the whole set, instead of being square and head-on, became diagonal. And we discovered this kind of amazing bit of geometry with these towers that could move and form different combinations. And again, so 
the other collaborator in all this was the space. It was the fact that, you know, the, and and because of that, of this, the scale of it, they beefed up the orchestra. In the middle of the rehearsal, unheard of, they added a whole string section to it. And so the collaboration worked in a lot of different ways there. Then how about for the road company? Did for the road company, again? all we had to do was we, we didn't have the thrust, so we mm-hmm. had to incorporate all the action that was downstage in the thrust into the actual towers that moved and all of that. And we couldn't do the opening. The opening had two diagonal, like an arcade that came out into the audience. So you were outside the piazza, and at the opening it opened up and pulled you into it. So we had so we did a beautiful show curtain of Florence and it was fun. It was a nice change. And are there plans for South Pacific to go out on the road? Yes, because that would seem even more challenging to scale back into a proscenium house. You know, once you've done it, once you and once you've designed it for the and for the the, the Beaumont again because it's it is a proscenium house with this addition of the thrust. Basically, it means you just you rethink the proscenium part of it. And granted, we're not going to be able to have the full scale airplane. We're not going to be able to have to do a lot of those things. But I think the we actually had to do a little uh, a version of the set for the Tony broadcast because we couldn't take the set out of the theater. So in a way, we were sort of doing a tour version or experimenting with it. And it is going to tour. It's I think it's supposed to go out in two thousand eleven or so. I don't know. I haven't thought that far ahead mm-hmm. yet. <laughs> In all of the designs that you've come up with, we've not mentioned one word, a four-letter word, C-O-S-T, cost. Does anybody say, hmm, to do that is more than the budget. How do we deal with this? I mean, how do you deal with, in the case of South Pacific, where the orchestra is revealed at the beginning by that whole stage sliding back? Was that something you had to build? Well, that's a real story because um, we came up with the idea. We presented it with the, the model. And there was a lot more scenery on stage. There were three rows of those blinds that, that shaped. There was, there was a, I can't remember now what all there was, but there was a lot more stuff. And we had this idea. And in the middle of it, uh, they came to us and they said, you know, we, just, we think you're going to have to abandon this slip stage idea because it's, it's going to eat up the budget. It's going to be noisy. There's a chance it could break. And I thought, well, they're probably right. You know, they know better about I just had the idea, and we all loved it. Well, Bart flipped out and said, no, 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 we've got to examine this. We have to cost everything out, and if we have to give up other things to afford this, it's too important a part of the show. It sets up the whole show. It sets up how the, how the audience perceives the show. So I went up to Scenic Technologies, which is uh, PRG, who were, who were actually – we were working on Cymbeline. And uh, they were building Cymbeline. So I said, you know, am I crazy? Is this just – folly. And so they actually engineered it. And Lincoln Center said, go ahead and we'll spend the money to have them engineer it just to find out. It turned out that it was affordable. It meant that we had to cut like a row of blind. We ended up cutting a lot of things to make that affordable. And the moral of this story is, I think, that a lot of times I, I don't mind the budgeting. I think it makes you more concise as a designer. I think that you're when you're designing with a director, you're throwing everything you can at it. Why You've got to try things. You don't know what it looks like unless you actually build it in a model and look at it. And a lot of times you can't throw those things away until someone comes to you and says, this is too expensive. And then it forces you to take a second look and pare it away and pare it away and, 
And I think it was good in the case of it. I would also imagine that you have to have some degree of an architect in you, some degree of, of an engineer to be able to, to actually accomplish these things. It's one thing to draw a sketch on a piece right. of paper, make a model, but to now move a stage, to now build a structure on a stage that's going to stand up and not fall over. I guess you have to know something about that as well. You do. It's it, Usually it comes from experience. I don't think that you can really train... If you start training set designers to be engineers, then they're going to become technicians. You almost have to encourage designers to create problems, to really go out there and just be as outrageous as you want to be. And because there are, for every designer, there are 10 brilliant technicians that would leap at the opportunity to solve that problem. And as you do more and more work, you realize you begin to realize what is possible, what's realistic, what's not realistic, and it becomes like a seventh sense to you, and you sort of take that into a, into account. So at this point, we've heard that you'll work on a tour of South Pacific. You've right. got some Americans abroad going now at second stage. You've got to get to work real soon out of Mice and Men. We are. <laughs> what else is, is on your plate? We're doing... Uh, Bart Shear and Company <laughs> are doing uh, a new production of Tales of Hoffman for the Met. We, you know, we actually had a had a great time doing uh, Barber of Seville at the Met, and it sort of ushered in Peter Gelb's reign as our as artistic director at the Met, and he was thrilling to work with, and so he's offered us that. I mean, not offered it. We're doing it. We're working on it now. Uh, Bart and Kathy Zubert, the costume designer, are over in Salzburg right now working on. Uh, a production of Romeo and Juliet, the the Gounod opera that we designed, and I'm going over there shortly to to get into when we do the technical and all of that kind of stuff. So those are the big things that are on the plate right now. And also, I am doing because I I shouldn't say this. I was never a great fan of Jesus Christ Superstar, and I was sent uh, Susan Booth at the Alliance. Mm-hmm sent me, uh, uh, or and Max Leventhal, who is her general manager there, sent me a CD of an all-black gospel rock version of Jesus Christ Superstar put together by this wonderful man named Louis St. Louis, who was one of the original orchestrators of Greece and did some songs from it. And I listened to it, and I could not stop jumping around and moving. It was the most fantastic thing I'd ever heard. They've gotten the sanction. Andrew Lloyd Webber said, go ahead, do it, and we'll see what happens. So I am doing Jesus Christ Superstar at the Alliance. And it's about the most far-out thing I've ever It's so far from what I usually would do. And it prompts an interesting question as you're talking about what's coming up. Opera work is planned so far in advance. Yes. And theater work seems to happen on a much shorter time frame. That's right. Can you balance those if they work on such different calendars? Oh, of course. And it's great because it means that you, an opera, you know what's coming way down the road. Uh, plays sort of fit in around it. Design sort of breaks down into like um, layers of activity. It's the, the collaborative part, the research part when you're starting. It's the, the drawing and the rough model making, which is really the, where the, the meat of it happens. Once you have the design, once you know what it is, a lot of it can be turned over to assistants to draft it, to make the finished models, to, to carry through the ideas. So while that's happening, it leaves you free to go back and work on these other things. So that's kind of the joy of it is that all these things are in different 
you know, stages of development, I guess you would say. And somewhere along the way, you have to leave time to teach at Yale. That's true. That anchors you. (laughs) You know, that's the best part of it is teaching, no matter what you're doing and what panic you're in, you have to drop it and go in there and spend a day with those students and deal with their problems. And it's really, it's wonderful because it makes you pull back and take a deep breath. And then when you get back to the work, you think, well, maybe it wasn't so bad, you know. Maybe it's okay. And as we wrap up, just that final question, why only a single palm tree in South Pacific? (laughs) When we had more than one, it looked banal. Uh It looked like a cliched version of South Pacific. And there was something about having the one palm tree with the beautiful Bali high drop, daylight, in the first act. And then Bart always said we need a different mood and a different feeling for the second act because it's when the war comes. And by putting that stormy sky behind it, we knew we were right because suddenly that palm tree lost its sense of whimsy and became something a little bit more tragic or something. I don't know. Well, I'm glad to hear it was not a matter of budget in the receding No, stage. no, no. It wasn't at all. <laughs> it, was, it was always the one palm tree. <laughs> Michael, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Michael. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.